My name's Deborah Lennis. I'm a very, 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 very proud Durable woman, a local elder. I'm also the cultural advisor at Inner West Council. These podcasts are about history and learning where you live, what you can do. And as I often say, Australia has, yes, a very black history, but there is no white history. What we have is a shared history. So, on behalf of the Gadigal and Wongal peoples of the Eora Nation, I'd like to say, Birrawagal, Naninya, Birrawagal, welcome, everyone, welcome. Sydney, capital of New South Wales. Sydney's story is full of unique things. Building a bridge in Sydney over a harbour too. Famous things. And overlooking the famous harbour, Sydney Opera House. Iconic things. One of Australia's most iconic landmarks, the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Tall things. Sydney Tower. The instantly recognisable soaring symbol has changed names. Oh, I remember this. I know a place... Hang on a minute. Why does the harbour hog all the icons? This is Inner West Icons, the other side of Sydney. I'm Bernie Hobbs, long time, long time Inner Westie. Come with me to the Inner West, Gadigal Wongal country. This episode's icon is dogs. About time. You can't swing a cat in the Inner West without hitting a dog. And that's exactly how it should be. Opinion of the presenter and host, not necessarily reflective of the podcast. Even our most famous resident of the Inner West. G'day, Anthony Albanese here with my mate Toto. Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese meets foreign leaders with his dog. We're doing a calendar of Toto and other world leaders. Now we need you with the pooch. So grab your leash and get those poo bags ready and let's hear all about the original dogs of the Inner West. When you're walking around anywhere in the Inner West, at some stage that was a dingo's territory. Dogs in the frontier wars. Anyone who went outside the encampment of Sydney Cove was in danger of being attacked by dogs. How Australia's practice of poisoning dogs started here in Sydney and moving on from poisoning, how we save dogs in the Inner West. If I did get off my tush and start a rescue, it would be named after her, and that's why we do what we do. And even make them into local landmarks. I've heard people say, I'll meet you up in Newtown by the dog. Now, in case you're wondering, it's okay. We are all dog people here at Inner West Icons. Everyone involved in this podcast has a dog. Stella is my hairy little cinnamon scroll and couch companion. And Jane, the producer, and John, the sound engineer, have got a scruffy little terrier called Shroomy. And because he's a little anxious or likes to stay close, Shroomy's actually here during all of our recordings, dog-checking the facts. Back to the show. When I moved to Leichhardt, I moved on a Friday. I spent the day moving all my stuff in and then I took my dog on Saturday morning to the local park and one guy saw me and said, you're new here, aren't you? I do look forward to this when I come home from work. The first thing I do is I'll, you know, get 
washed up and get work off my hands and then, um, yeah, I'm straight down to the dog park. And I said yes. He said, look, come here 4.30 every day. Welcome to Leichhardt. And come, there's 20, 30 of us that hang out every afternoon. And that was my, I guess, initiation into Leichhardt. It's funny when you first come down here, for years I didn't know anyone's name. We just know each other's dog's names. And then <laughs> it was good like that for a while. And then when you get... <laughs> That was one of the other advantages. You didn't, no one knew who you were, it was just the dogs. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, you, you can, after a while, you get to know, probably it's okay if I know your name, it will be okay, and vice versa, yeah. So I had this wonderful dog community, and the dog community is just getting bigger and bigger, and every, it's just a wonderful way to end a day, to start a weekend, whatever. I got Stitch in 2018, and I think it was fate, so I really wanted to get a rescue dog, and I thought, what are the chances to get a whippet in rescue. Retro's across Ridgeback, Staffordshire and Greyhound. He used to get mistaken for being Greyhound when he was younger, but he sort of got a little bit more buffy-headed and it's pretty obvious that he's not a Greyhound to a lot more people now. As soon as I said that on a Sunday night, he appeared on a Monday morning in Central Coast and then by Tuesday he was in my car and I brought him, <laughs> and I brought him home. That's what he thinks he's the king down here. It's funny, he's down here, gets into a lot of trouble and then the next person will say, what a wonderful dog he is. You sort of walk another 50 metres down, someone says, oh, what a fantastic dog he is. Someone else is about to report me to the police 50 metres the other way. We hang out all the time. I take him to clothes shopping, so... <laughs> it's perfect. <laughs> He kind of fits in with my life. <laughs> Cafes, <laughs> Puppuccinos here at Cafe Bones. <laughs> he was lining up <laughs> with the adults waiting for his muffin. <laughs> That's okay. He was very polite. He did push in, but <laughs> he was there. Uh, yeah, you really enjoy the coffee shop down here. Michael, the owner, is a great host here for the park and very, um, yeah, very sort of low-key and yeah, welcoming sort of character. I'm Michael. I'm one of the owners of Cafe Bones in Leichhardt. Yep, we love our dogs here in the inner west. In fact, we love them so much that in 2000, we had a world first. Cafe Bones was the world's first truly dog-friendly cafe. And you might be thinking, well, I can take my dog to my local cafe and they can sit next to me while I sip on my muggachino. But at Cafe Bones... Your dog can have its own Chino. Puppuccinos, that's us, and Dogachinos, that's us as well. Um, they're our, I guess, our, our flagship trademark thing for, for dogs. They're served in a bowl. I, I guess it's an, an homage to a cappuccino, but there's no coffee, obviously, or chocolate or anything bad for dogs at all. It is a secret recipe, highly sought after, but unique to us. Some dogs get a little portly and they're like, well, I need to just, I don't want to miss out on my puppuccino. But, you know, it wouldn't hurt to shed a couple of pounds, so we've got a Dogachino for them as well. Now, you might be thinking, who are these Inner West Puppuccino drinking dogs? Well, they're not all fancy breeds ending in oodle. Cafe Bones is actually a pretty down-to-earth place. We're situated in the most wonderful park in Leichhardt, where we've got a canal running down one side and a railway running down the other, so it's mostly enclosed and it's long, so the dogs can have a good run if they want to. That wonderful long park that Michael's describing, it's called the Greenway. It's the green guts of the inner west, and we made a whole episode about it back in season one. We just try and be part of the community. We try and coexist with cyclists, with dogs, with park users, with joggers. The first thing that we need to do in, with training is to condition the reward marker. So 
when you're using food to work with a dog, the dog needs to receive the food within half to one second. The Leichhardt Dog Training Club operates here every Sunday morning. It strengthens the sense of community because they're providing a training service. A dog training club run by volunteers each Sunday where your dog can train its human for a gold coin donation. And I get to see and play with every possible shape and size of dog, which is wonderful. I mean, when you're surrounded by dogs, how can you be bored, really? Oh, I want that job. Yep, you'll find pretty much every kind of dog here in the inner west, including a handsome wolfhound crossed with God knows what else called Stella. You might even find a pet dingo. And that dingo would feel right at home. Everywhere in Sydney, in the inner west, that was a dingo's territory. Fact check, is a dingo even a dog? Dingo is a dog. Well, it's a canid, as are wolves and foxes and all the members of that family, the domestic dog. It used to be called Canis lupus. Now it's Canis lupus dingo. Carry on. My name's Guy Hull. I'm a dog behaviourist, breed historian and author. I've published a book called The Dogs That Made Australia in 2018. Dingoes came to Australia between three and 5,000 years ago. They were brought by travellers, called the Lapita people, we're pretty sure, and they were given as a gift to Indigenous people in Northern Australia. Dingoes came to live all over Australia, from deserts to rainforests. So there's hundreds of words for dingo in Aboriginal languages. Dingoes are in dreamtime stories of different Aboriginal nations. And the word in Australian English, dingo, comes from the Darug language of the Sydney Basin. The Darug people called tame dingoes dingu, and there's a Darug word for wild dingoes, warrigal. The Darug people and Aboriginal people all over lived with and tamed dingoes. Aboriginal people in Sydney lived with dogs, dingoes. They'd found the dingo to be critical, not just as a hunting dog, but also as a source of warmth around the campfire. I'm Stephen Gapps. I'm an historian focusing on frontier wars histories, and this is my dog, Shady. For Aboriginal people, the dingo was essential around the camp, yeah. In 1788, everything changed. Here's Guy Hull. When the first fleet came, those colonists plonked itself down, not only in the territory of the people who were living there at the time, but also plonked themselves right down in the middle of a dingo's territory as well. So they came and they immediately were offside with that animal. As soon as they laid eyes on it, it had to go. So why did the British hate the dingo so much? Well, let's just say their animal rights record wasn't super strong. The British had just wiped out the last wolf in Scotland from that complete island after you know, a centuries-long pogrom to just get rid of any predator. And when the Aboriginal people of Sydney realised that the British settlers were actually armed invaders, they used dingoes against them in conflicts we call the Frontier Wars or the Australian Wars. There's reports from some of the early colonists, their diaries and journals, particularly David Collins mentions it, convicts who were going out collecting rushes from outside Sydney Cove, set upon by dingoes. Rushes are native grasses and reeds like lamandra that grow along Sydney Harbour. They've got important traditional uses as food, medicine and basket weaving. 
the British commanders sent convicts out in boats to cut down and take the rushes as roofing material for the Sydney Cove camp. Aboriginal people were actively setting the dogs on the convicts at this, this, this period of conflict. So the use of the dog as part of the arsenal of weapons by Aboriginal people was, was one thing. But also the Europeans found that they could set their dogs on Aboriginal people as well. And that happened later in the frontier as well. Both sides in the conflict in, in Sydney, Aboriginal people and Europeans in the 1790s in particular, found dogs to be a critical resource in conflict. In 1788, protein was in pretty short supply for the invaders. The British could keep taking local fish and oysters, which they did, and could eat the precious cattle and sheep they brought, or they could eat the protein that was jumping all around them. One of the interesting things about here in the Inner West is that Petersham was the, the nearest open space to this early colony where there were known to be lots of kangaroos. It was still bush, but it was more, more open than around the cove. So the kangaroo endemic to the Sydney regions, the eastern grey kangaroo, or the grey scrubber as they call them, and it's a creature of the woodland and clearings and open spaces and things. If you've ever been out in the bush where kangaroos are not tame and not used to seeing people, you see that, you know, from a kilometre away, they will run from a person because, historically, they're used to being prey and hunted. They were traditionally the prey of Aboriginal people. Um, they were wary of humans. So it was really hard, surprisingly, it might seem, for Europeans with a musket to be able to shoot kangaroos. And since they can't shoot themselves a kangaroo for dinner, the British have another plan. Dogs. They head off with their hunting dogs to Petersham, a.k.a. Kangaroo Ground. The governor would have let them use his greyhounds to start coursing them, and coursing we mean chasing them, but greyhounds are very lightly built. They're built for really chasing smaller animals like hares and you know, even smaller rabbits. Skippy looks like she's sweet and kind and harmless, but they, they kill a lot of dogs. Kangaroos, they're the most dangerous terrestrial animal in Australia. And they're probably the most dangerous herbivore in the world when they're cornered. They can grab a dog and disembowel them with their, you know, big toes. They get into water and then grab dogs and stand on them and drown them. So they've had thousands of years practice doing this with dingoes. Disembowelling? Drowning? Geez, Skippy, you are full of surprises. What's that, Skip? Totally you've got a right to defend yourself. When the British arrived, they created this breed called kangaroo dogs. They were fast, they were manoeuvrable, they had that killer instinct and they were large enough to tackle kangaroos. Breeding kangaroo dogs was big business. They were the, the dog of the times. It, it was an essential dog. If you were dependent on government rations, 
But if you were lucky enough, if particularly if you're a free settler, to have your own kangaroo dogs or you're able to feed yourself if, you're, if they were half any good. And if you want to see what a kangaroo dog looks like, we've got some pics in the show notes at innerwesticons.com. It didn't take long for the Inner West to become a bit too dog-friendly. As Sydney began to grow, Governor Philip Gidley King, who was the second governor, he put out an order that if you owned more than one dog and they weren't greyhounds or terriers, that you had to kill them. People would, what they'd call, fold their sheep at night, put them in a pen and put them in a fold. And the dingo and the wild dog problem was so bad that they were coming in and, and climbing the fences and launching themselves on the stock in those folds and killing stock in the folds. In 1804, the Sydney Gazette and New South Wales Advertiser reported... On Tuesday night last, a dreadful ravage was made at Long Cove by native dogs. Six ewes were found dead. Eleven others were torn and mangled so shockingly that few were expected to recover from their wounds. Jeez, dogs, you're not making it easy. Long Cove is what we now call Iron Cove, home to the Bay Run. In 1807, Governor Bly had had enough of, of all dogs, so he made a proclamation that because of the number of sheep and lambs being killed in and around Sydney, all dogs were to be immediately destroyed, except those owned by officers and respectable housekeepers kangaroos and house dogs. So if you're a good bloke and the governor liked you didn't have to kill your dogs, the problem was no one did anything about it and the problem just got worse. And Sydney had developed the reputation of being like hell on earth for, for feral dogs. People were reporting it in London papers. It was a really, really bad place for dog problems. Feral dogs were just one of their problems. Living in a dingo's territory was not working out so well for the new colony. So dingoes, their main prey was kangaroo. That, that was your Sunday dinner for the dingoes. Normally they're solitary hunters, but they'd have to work as a pack, at least more than one or two to, to catch a kangaroo. It's pretty hard work doing that. Kangaroos are very lean, have no fat. As soon as the colonists arrived, they brought these sheep that were slow, easy to catch, easy to kill, and fatty and really delicious. <laughs> so as soon as the dingoes found those, they went, oh, well, I don't think we'll waste our time getting ripped apart by the local kangaroos. We're just going to eat these things. So there's immediate problems. Grazing sheep on land stolen from Darug people around Sydney was the growth industry for colonists. But between the frontier wars, dingo attacks and land completely unsuitable for sheep, setting up sheep runs had its challenges. Something had to give. So Operation Get Rid of Dingoes began. And has it ever stopped? The Reverend Samuel Marsden, the flogging parson, him and Gregory Blacksland and some other sheep growers put a bounty on dingoes. I mean, it was a rum colony back then. So they were offering rum for people to kill as many wild dogs as they could possibly find. The sheep farmers did offer a non-alcoholic alternative, so very now of them, one pound sterling for the complete skin of a fully grown native dog and 10 shillings or half a gallon of spirits for the complete skin of a native pup. That was the first time a bounty system 
or systematic extermination was trialled in Australia, in New South Wales. That's when the poisoning started with arsenic. And it would have been in the region of Sydney's inner west where all of that arsenic poisoning would have first begun. That's how they were able to start wiping out the dogs because dogs are scavengers, poison up some meat, throw it out. If a dog doesn't eat it, it's probably just going to be some of that annoying native wildlife that's going to eat it and die, and who wants those anyway? But you put sheep here, you've got to declare war on, on nature. So that's the way that it went. It's argued that this is how poisoning animals in Australia became normal. We got started on dingoes 200 years ago. Wild dogs are still baited on farmland and in Australian national parks today. The debate over wild dogs rages. One side says that there are very few pure dingoes in Australia and that we need to control feral dogs. And the other side asks, are we actually poisoning dingoes? In May 2023, the ABC reported on a new DNA test that shows nearly all wild dogs are actually pure dingoes. We've got links to the research and news reports in the show notes. As soon as firearms became self-loading and bullets were available and strychnine and poison, kangaroo dogs weren't needed. By the time the kangaroo dog really sort of disappeared, it was only being used way out in the bush. It got an ugly reputation and was really unfounded because all of those greyhound breeds are lovely dogs. They might be killers, but they're very people-oriented and make lovely house dogs. His name's Levi. He is a Pomeranian cross Japanese Spitz. So he's very fluffy, he's got long hair, he's, he's like a toasted marshmallow. <laughs> I've got Percy, who's a schnoodle, he's one year old now. Covid dog, I'd always wanted one all my life, but I always worked at the office and hated the idea of working from home. But once I figured out I could do it, then along came the dog. My dog's name is Bodhi. He is close to three. He's a rescue dog. In theory, he's a mixture of Border Collie and Dalmatian, but I think he's got Staffy or something like that in him. And then Ted is my other dog, who's a rescue dog who we've taken on just recently. My dog wants to allow everyone to play ball with him. He just goes and drops the ball at people's feet and waits. <laughs> yeah. Mine's Pablo over there, he's two. He doesn't care about food, he doesn't care about toys. He only really cares about dogs, as you can see, and so this is like his favourite place on earth. Now, it's hard to choose the doggiest suburb of the inner west with 27 suburbs in the council area. But you'd be hard put to beat Newtown, where three dogs are permanent residents. Very permanent. I've heard people say, I've actually overheard them, is, I'll meet you up in Newtown by the dog. When something becomes a landmark, I think it goes some way to embedding itself in the heart of the community. And if you've walked down the main drag of Newtown, chances are you've walked right past, or rather under, these life-size public artworks. Three dogs, each standing high on a poster bollard. Standing dog, running dog, and walking dog. They're the work of inner-westy artist and sculptor, Richard Burns. 
The dogs were commissioned by the local council back in 2000 with three things in mind, being durable public art. They're cast aluminium, so they're a silvery, shiny material. Aluminium is perfect outdoors. They clean themselves, so they require nothing in the way of maintenance. Reflecting the community's diversity and love of dogs, if you stand on a corner in Newtown, you will see someone walk past with a diamante collared poodle, and then you'll see a bulldog with a rope around its neck. And telling local history through art. So each of the dogs are particularised to the history and the location. The dog in Newtown has a wooden kitchen spoon as part of its intestines. The wooden spoon was simply a reference to the restaurants. This one, Walking Dog, is on King Street, opposite Newtown Station. It's the one you'll see in most selfies. It also has some cogs and wheels and some machinery parts. Newtown, around that area, was the hub of the stagecoach coming through from Sydney to Parramatta and other areas. Standing Dog is also in Newtown down Enmore Road, outside the old post office, opposite the Warren View Hotel. And the third dog sculpture, Running Dog, is right next door to Newtown, in the suburb of St Peter's. Just out the front of St Peter's Station, facing the old chimneys there, it was an industrial centre. It was, there were factories and whatever around there in the early turn of the century. Things like textile turning and the dyeing of fabrics went on there. So I included a large toothed cog to stabilise the back legs. I walked past one and one of them one day was wearing a Superman cape. They often attract the odd pink hula hoop or whatever over the top. I walked past about three or four months after they were first installed and someone had very beautifully put on a full leather dog collar with a beautifully studded metal finish to it. I'm glad. I'm glad they're part of the locality and, uh, yeah, it's a connection with your community. I've always loved uh, Marrickville. I've been living here for over 20 years. I've been here and moved away and come back. so. For me, very special to have a public artwork in the very suburb you live in is quite special, yeah. Melon's baby, she's six, six months now, yeah. So she's got her period, her first period. She likes to look downstairs a lot, so yeah. With it being her first heat as well, she gets quite nervous around people, but just seeing her with the chels, the other chels, she's more calm. His name's Arthur, so he's just very blonde and beautiful. He's always happy and he thinks life's just a big dream. I like to call him an inner west rottweiler. He's actually a spoodle. Well, it's a bit, it's my own sort of joke because when you see all the oodles walking up and down Darling Street in Balmain, they're always fluffy and very well kept. Not aggressive at all because I think people reflect who their dogs are. Yeah, so it's just a bit of a joke because he's definitely not a rottweiler by any means. Her name is Olive and she's a gorgeous Dalmatian. She's food obsessed. She absolutely adores eating the tiny little figs on the Port Jackson fig trees here and loves the puppuccinos. For a nation of dog lovers, Australians are abandoning our pets at alarming rates. Why? 
the ABC reports living costs, vet care and the impacts of COVID. And there's the law where, except in grown-up Victoria, landlords can discriminate against dog owners. And when dogs are dumped, animal rescue groups step in. I'm Lisa Wright. I was a founder of Maggie's Rescue in 2011. Lisa Wright says the one question she always gets asked is, who is Maggie? My take on Maggie, like, I've, I've got to be honest with you, I, I didn't know Maggie for very long. It was a day. Lisa Wright and her family had moved from inner West Sydney to Brisbane. There was a rescue group in Brisbane that I'd been doing some volunteering with and I got a phone call from a woman and said, I've been told you're the person to see about rescuing a border collie. Maggie was living under a house, a Queenslander out near Ipswich um, and it was a closed house. It was dark underneath. And eventually when we did get Maggie, it probably was up there in my top five cases of animal neglect. Her nails were probably about three quarters of an inch long. Her coat was so matted that she'd been turned back by three groomers. She did go to a foster carer and the foster carer called me in tears and she said, this dog is pacing, she's in pain. And if you know Border Collies, and most people out there will, like, you know, they're no more important than any other dog, but Border Collie absolutely lives to make you happy. And part of the reason why I personally don't own a Border Collie is, is because of that. They'll work through pain, they'll work through distress, they'll work through your disapproval and still be trying to keep you happy. So the fact that that dog was living under a house, neglected like that, in pain, suffering, with its coat matted down to its skin, like, how could you not be spurred into action? And Animal Welfare League up at Ipswich took her in for a vet check. She had masses throughout her abdomen and she was at end-stage cancer, in their opinion. And we made the really awful and sad choice to euthanise her. And, and look, I can talk about her now without crying. I couldn't for a long time. I've often found this story very hard to tell, but my promise to her was that I would actually honour her. And if I did get off my tush and start a rescue, it would be named after her and all the Maggies in the world. That's how Maggie's Rescue it was about her. I really wanted, and this probably comes back to my inner West <laughs> ideology, is cooperative where everybody's skills will come together and we'll form this, you know, utopian world of animal welfare. And so I went about doing it. So on 14th of August 2011, we registered Maggie's Rescue. We always knew we'd be coming back to Sydney and so I registered it in New South Wales. For five years, Lisa ran the rescue rehoming dogs and cats, even though this episode is not about cats, out of her home. My husband, Mark, and I tallied up the volume of dogs alone that came through our house. And we lived in a terrace in St Peter's. It was 172. Forget 101 Dalmatians, 172 rescue dogs pouring their way through your house is a lot of dog. 
And as well as that charming terrace slash kennel in St Peter's, the other place you'd come across Maggie's rescue was the Addison Road Community Centre, affectionately known as Addie Road. Over the years, we had a big presence on the grounds of Addie Road and we often did a lot of our adoption days and things like that when the markets were on. People listening to this who have actually been hit up by a guy for money walking around, that was my husband. In 2016, the cooperative moved out of Lisa Wright's home and into a permanent space at Addie Road. From rehoming dogs in the lounge room, kitchen and God knows where else, to advocacy, giving out donated dog and cat food and a whole lot more in their very own space. Maggie's Rescue has come a long way, thanks to its hundreds and hundreds of volunteers. And we thank you. For Lisa Wright, the memory of Maggie the Border Collie will always stay with her. For me, I didn't want her life to mean nothing. And I guarantee you, there is a thousand Maggies out there right now, you know, that really, really need people to just notice them and recognise them as, as being worth doing something about it, you know. You don't have to be going out there and starting a rescue, but the Maggies of the world need to be noticed. They just do. Okay, that's it for this episode. I think we all need to go and hug a dog now. Stella, come here, baby. (laughs) Hey, it's so good to be back in your ears. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. Please tell your friends, even the cat people. And if you're a new listener, there's a whole season of icons to catch up with. Our next icon of the Inner West is something we all know and do not love. It's the flight path, baby. Oh, yeah, the third runway. Inner West Icons is researched, written and produced by Jane Curtis, sound by John Jacobs and presented by me, Bernie Hobbs. This podcast is mostly a labour of love, but we're super grateful for Inner West Council's Community History and Heritage Grant and to Inner West Council's Living Arts, which supported Jane to be a producer in residence at the Greenway Edge Arts Festival for this episode. 